1: Everybody, this is Phil Town.
0: And this is Danielle Town.
1: And welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are figuring out how to invest like the best investors in the world. And mm-hmm. by the way, by that, we very specifically mean people who invest.
0: <laughs> Let us now define
1: <laughs> as opposed to speculate. There are phenomenal speculators out there, some of whom own baseball teams. Uh, but and football teams, but that's not what we do. What we're trying to do, what we intend to do is um, make sure that we know <clears throat> that the companies that we buy or whatever we buy, whether it's a bicycle at a flea sale or, you know, a flea market or a house or anything else, whatever we buy, we know we'll be able to sell it for more in 10 years.
0: Yeah, That's totally
1: fundamental definition.
0: Totally. And I love that you always say that... It can be anything because we talk so much about public companies because that's what's accessible to most of us small investors. But it, it really helps me to think about it like, no, it really can be anything. It can be the apartment down the street. It can be a private company. It can be your own business that you're running. I've had people tell me they use these principles to manage their own businesses better, which is so smart. I think and it's one of
1: the smartest things you can do, actually.
0: Totally. It um, and it can be, you know buying a bike that you know is worth a bunch, um, and the person you're buying it from doesn't know that. It can be that. So, yep. lots of things.
1: Lots of things. And um, the idea that you could have specific criteria that you build a business around, criteria that someone like us would use to buy that business, mm-hmm. might be a really smart idea, if you yeah. think about it.
2: Yeah. Because
1: you know, you're looking for great businesses and great businesses have some very clear definitions, right? Uh, The the most important thing in a great business is that it has a very large moat that protects it from competition. It's a niche business Mm -hmm. that can protect that niche. And if you build a business that doesn't have a niche, essentially what you're doing is competing on price. And so you really want to think about whether you're building your own businesses or whether you're built, you know, buying into somebody else's, the criteria is very, very similar, if not exactly identical.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's kind of what we think about. And, <clears throat> excuse me.
0: But you were going to say, I thought, who the great investors were or are.
1: Well, yes, they, who are, are, they? are. Who are they? Ben Graham, who invented value investing, wrote the Bible of value investing, back in 1934, called Security Analysis with with uh, David Dodd as their professors at Columbia University. And um, that basic style of investing didn't exist before Ben laid it all out there. I'm sure somebody did it, but you know, hmm. nobody laid it out. Clearly, how you go about doing something like that, and it starts with the basic assumption that the market is inefficient. Whatever market that you're in, whether it's real estate, flea markets, or or stocks that there's an inefficiency in the market and that inefficiency means that from time to time things will be priced above their value or below their value they won't be priced properly mm-hmm. because somebody's not paying attention or gotten emotional or there's fear or there's greed and things get out of hand okay so we we know this about bubbles right we get into bubbles in the stock market or in real estate mm-hmm. we've seen that in our lifetime And that just is an inefficiency. It means that people are not paying attention to the actual value of what they're buying. And that you have the opposite of bubbles. You have a collapse of a market, which means the same thing, that fear is taken over and people aren't paying attention to what they're selling things for. They're just getting out. And so we're looking for those kind of inefficiencies. Ben invented that and wrote it out how you go about doing that. Um, his second book called The Intelligent Investor is thought by Warren Buffett to be the best book ever written about investing.
0: I will say it is more readable than security analysis, it is, it is, just it as is, a
1: side tip. And neither one of them are easy. No. <laughs> so along come authors like, you know, Guy Spear, who, who wrote uh, Education of a Value Investor and Manesh Prabhai, who wrote Dondo Investing, and these are books that are tried to explain from the the author's point of view how to go about doing that. And then you and I wrote a book called Invested, which. Well, frankly, I was going to say Rule, number, one's a a rule
0: number One is a pretty good book about how to do that.
1: And my, but it's still in it's still out there in the bookshelves. By the way, that's amazing. it has been thirteen years, and it's it's still there. Fourteen years now, <laughs> so that's really exciting. And so we've we've written some books to try to help investors figure this out you know and so but it all comes back to graham and then we probably wouldn't know that much about ben graham because he's very academic and the books are very academic you know business school kinds of books and we're not business school necessarily investors except that warren buffett became ben graham's disciple and and became the best investor in the world by far he and charlie munger basically have been teaching us since 1995 or 1955 how they've gone about investing, and mm. Warren's written a letter every year that goes into great detail about how to do this kind of investing.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: we're not making stuff up. I mean, it's coming right from the fountain of of knowledge about this, and we just want to constantly give him credit uh, and hope that he lives to be 150 because every time he speaks, I learn more. Me too. And, every time charlie speaks we learn more it is it's extraordinary how brilliant these guys are and how they get to the heart of investing and we're we're trying to unfold that in a way that everybody out there listening to the podcast can understand and there's there's it's amazing to me as we dig deeper into this that so many of the people that write about how buffett and munger invest don't necessarily do it exactly that way and well, I
0: think it's natural for people to find their own way,
1: don't you? I do, and I and I guess I'm thinking that people, most of the people who write books about this, are also managing other people's money. And as we've unfolded here in the podcast many times, there is a pressure on money managers that is very difficult to to uh, push back against. It's very difficult not to be overwhelmed by what Warren Buffett calls the institutional imperative. And by that he means the, the fact that you, if you're if you're a batter and playing baseball and you're you're standing at the plate, you've got all of these investors up, or you've got all these fans up there who are your investors. You got all these fans up there who are watching you try to hit the ball, and if you stand there with the bat on your shoulder, watching one pitch after another go by in this game of investing, looking at one stock after another and not buying anything. After a while, those fans start to get a little antsy. And Warren says it's like really hard up there at the batter's box when you hear people yelling, swing, you bum! <laughs> This is
0: reminding me that we did an entire episode where you tried to explain this baseball analogy to me. (laughs) and The whole episode was just you being like more baseball and me being like, that makes no sense. You guys can go back and listen to it. I think it's called something like fat pitch. That's (laughs) right. It was a bit of a mess. It's brilliant. Um, No, it was
1: brilliant. It was brilliant. It was a bit of a mess. Um, (laughs) I I love this metaphor, and not only because Buffett uses it all the time, it has a picture of Ted Williams on his wall. So I I think it's a very good metaphor because it's very hard for fund managers. I mean, I'm talking about really good ones, including Warren and Charlie, to not swing the bat.
0: I mean, I think it's hard for all of us to not swing the bat. Like, there are those pressures, but I, I also think... You know, those of us just investing our own money feel a lot of those pressures. You know, just that well, we get so many true. questions about that. Like, oh, I'm sitting in cash. I've been in cash for a long time. Should I stay there? It's like, we feel the pressure. It doesn't when it comes from other people. It's probably worse. But um, I think it's it's the same for anybody trying to make investing decisions. Um, so something on
1: that I think is worth worth diving into right here at the beginning of the year. Um, because everybody feels that kind of pressure ag- agreed and it there are some things that help me at least they that help me step back from the pressure and oh. i thought i'd kind of go into a couple of those today
0: all right so new year new pvt <laughs> new year new you new fill town
1: what to do when you are feeling the pressure and and uh, and and what to do in this market where it's very, very interesting stock market right now. Mm. Um, very different than we've seen it in a long, 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 long time. And so um, I thought I'd kind of dive into this a little bit because although Warren and Charlie say they don't look at the market, they don't, they're not influenced by the market itself, um, the fact of the matter is that when you can't find great companies that are on sale at all, you just can't, um, which is the case right now for Buffett. He's having a really rough time and there's pressure from shareholders to do something with $120 billion that they mm-hmm. say you could give it back to us. You could give mm-hmm. us the cash in a form mm-hmm. of a dividend. Well, he's feeling the heat more than maybe ever. And He certainly has way more cash on hand than he's ever had by more than double. And, um, and and I know that there have been times in the past when he's gotten out of the market and stayed out of the market for a good chunk of time um, in spite of the fact that the market's still going up and he's and, and that's one of these things right now. He's in one of those right now. and it is not easy. So I thought I would share a couple of things one one is a tool that Warren said that he uses, um, although he said it almost twenty years ago and hasn't said a word about it since. so we don't know okay for so wait sure. a second
0: so these are tools to do what?
1: tools to, uh, help you understand why you're not seeing a lot of great companies available to buy.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay. That's not what I thought you were going to say. So tools to help you understand why you're waiting.
1: Yeah. Okay. They they give me, they give me some confidence in my process Mm. because my process is, find businesses I understand, make sure they have a moat, make sure I like the management and buy them on sale and buy them on sale as we've described in great detail in invested means particularly get them with a 10% yield on cash, right? Mm-hmm. Buy them so that the money you pay uh, is um, you know 10 times the, the cash flow coming off of that business. And so um, that criteria means and has been a valid criteria for over 100 years, that criteria means that, uh, or indicates today, that it's very hard to find those kind of companies. There's just hardly any around at that kind of pricing. So it helps to understand why, all right? Or it helps to understand, if not why, at least that that that's reflected in the overall market. And we've talked about these tools before, but I wanted to go into them a little bit more at the beginning of the year here. The 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 tool cool. that Buffett okay, talks so about. Okay,
0: the, so what's the tool that Buffett
1: talks about? That's it's called the Wilshire uh, GDP ratio.
0: Ah, we have talked about this many times.
1: Well, there's not gonna there's nothing new under the sun in this podcast. <laughs> we, everything is laid out in the first podcast with Charlie in one minute. So That's everything true. else is and then just in a two hundred fifty page
0: book that we wrote exactly. Hmm, but. I think we come up with new ideas all the time. So
1: well, we have certainly have uh, a lot of amplification that can that can run in new ways of thinking about things. But this these these tools right here have been around a long time. And and as I said, Buffett talked about it. I think in Forbes or Fortune magazine back in two thousand one, um, where he went into detail about about the uh, Wilshire GDP ratio. So let me just say what it is real quick.
2: Yeah. Okay. Although
1: you already know, right?
0: Um, well, I know what it is, but, you know, okay, what so you're going to say, a, I don't know.
1: This is statistics being kept by the Federal Reserve in St. Louis, and that their abbreviation is the FRED, F-R-E-D. That's the St. Louis Federal Reserve. And um, if you go to their website, or if you just Google FRED Wilshire GDP, and Wilshire is W-I-L-S-H-I-R-E, FRED Wilshire GDP, um, this chart will come up. It's called the uh, Wilshire 5000 total market full cap index slash gross domestic product, Mm -hmm. which is Wilshire GDP. So the Wilshire 5000. So it's a
0: ratio, just to be clear. It's a ratio of the Wilshire 5000, which is a collection of stocks, which is supposed to be basically the whole US market. Mm -hmm. And it's called the Wilshire 5000, but I don't think there are actually 5,000 stocks in it anymore. No. I think it's more the... like 3,500 because I looked it up.
1: Oh, and, and just the policies of of uh, regulation and the, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act have put a real dampening on the willingness of companies to go public and submit mm-hmm. themselves to that kind of public scrutiny and regulatory scrutiny. And as a result... Over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, we've gone from 9,000 public companies to about 4,500 total.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And companies aren't going public at anywhere near the rate. I think they're going public at about half the rate that they used to.
0: Yeah, it's slowed down a lot. So, so the, this the, ratio the, is of those companies that, which are are, that are out there to the GDP of the U.S., which is gross domestic product of the U.S.
1: Right, which is the revenue of all of the goods and services sold.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's like U.S. sales. Yeah. Right? And U.S. sales are running, I don't know, ballpark-ish, $20 trillion. Well, it's probably 18 or something like that, but let's okay. call it $20 trillion. I'll go
0: with, with whatever you say because I have yeah, no idea. Or take
1: one or two trillion, no, no, no big thing. And that is divided into, so that's the denominator, and that's divided into <clears throat> the total value of, Uh, of the market, total price of the market, which means take all the stock shares of a company times their stock price, and then do that for every single company in the Wilshire 5000 index, which is almost all the companies and you get a total amount of money. And it might be, let's just ballpark it at um, $30 trillion. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's just say, so you divide 20 trillion from GDP into 30 trillion of Wilshire. And you'd get 1.5
2: mm-hmm.
1: or 150%.
0: So the idea, right, is that it, the the idea behind the ratio is to see if stocks actually are reflecting what is being sold by companies in the US.
1: If stock prices. Stock
0: prices, right, exactly. Right.
1: Now, in in order to <clears throat> in order to have this be a, a useful tool, we would want to look and see, well, what have stock prices as a group, been relative to GDP in the past,
2: Mm.
1: right? Mm -hmm. So when the market was super cheap, what did that look like? When Mm -hmm. when we know historically you could have bought a lot of companies at a cheap price and you would have done really well with them over time, like back in the 70s, let's say, Mm -hmm. what did that ratio look like then? And so that's pretty useful to know that it was ranging between, oh, 20% and 40%. Okay. Sorry. So 20 to 40% all through the 70s, um, through the early 80s, all the way to 1990s. It, it was always 40% or lower.
0: Meaning that stock prices, or let's say the Wilshire, was 40% of the GDP.
1: Right. So if GDP is $20 trillion, if we had 40% stock If stock prices were forty percent of GDP, Mm -hmm. they would be at eight trillion Mm dollars.
0: So that was cheap, quote
1: unquote. That was that would have been cheap, and that would be cheap today. Okay, okay. And then in late nineteen nineties, the the Federal Reserve started getting very active in interest rates, and um, and the market started getting very expensive, and things took off, and it got clear up. The ratio got clear up to one hundred and twenty percent by 1999
0: mm. so that was the crazy stock market bubble of the dot-com
1: era true true so in 2001 buffett came out and said well look if, if the market gets up at frothy above 100 percent, something like that of gdp it's getting frothy and you it gets up 120 it starts to be a red flag
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you should be worried right that the market's not going to stay there because historically it's never been able to sustain that that level of pricing relative to the sales of the country.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the um, the Wilshire GDP ratio that Buffett talks about is pretty average over a long period of time of around, you know, if stocks are at 80% of Wilshire GDP, of Wilshire, it, it, if, the, if, the, if the ratio is 80%, that's a pretty viable market. Below eighty percent is real buyable. Forty percent, super buyable. Okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you're gonna you're gonna find some deals out there at that kind of pricing. Okay, but when you get above one hundred percent, it starts to become fully priced. You, the whole market is fully priced. You get above one hundred and twenty percent, it's starting to get expensive. Okay, and right now we are at, I believe, one hundred and seventy percent.
0: Oh wow, it's gone up since we last talked about it.
1: Yeah. It's now, well, of course it has.
0: Of course it has because the market's gone up dramatically.
1: Right. So we're higher what than What did I've you ever say? Seen. I missed the
0: number. What was the number? One, 173%. Jeez. 173.
1: So mm-hmm. 173, that's a long way from 20
2: mm-hmm.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's the first thing that gives us an indication of why we can't find anything It's because the whole market is massively expensive relative to historical pricing. And then, of course, we could look at macro reasons why. And that's the number one, is that interest rates are extremely low and being held down. And there's no place to go to get a a yield on your money that'll give you much. So people are putting their money in the stock market. All right, so that's the Wilshire GDP. What
0: I like about that particular resource is that you can look back historically and you don't have to worry about um, adjusting the value for inflation because it's all wow. constant right. So Good it's thought. just it's just straightforward like here are the numbers. Um, here are the here's numbers. the ratio because the ratio will be within its own year. So it's yeah I, I, that's I didn't know it had gone that. Hi. Yeah, it's, it's just pretty, also, it's pretty just far
1: out there, man. It's, it's like, okay, well, where can this go from here? 200%, 300%. I, mean, it's,
0: fr- I don't see why not. It's already untethered from reality. So exactly. I really it's don't see fully, why it can't go to 300%. We'll be sitting here going, it's at 300% now. Wow. That's amazing. And there's really nothing else to say.
1: And that <laughs> is a really good indication of getting near the top.
0: <clears throat> Maybe. I mean, we're at 170, so we're nowhere near the top if the top is 300, right? Oh,
1: and by the way, I should I should admit here that um, from about 2016 till now, it's been completely crazy. Yeah. So we're already four years into crazy. Yeah. Right? Right. <clears throat> so pretty pretty hard to say it won't be 300%. Right. And if you're sitting in a mutual fund and have money in a 401k and are broadly diversified in the market... And you're listening to us talk about this thing as being dangerous place to be invested. Um, Red flags all over the place. And so you get out into cash and three years from now, it's at 300%. You are going to hate us.
0: Yeah. And you're probably going to lose your job. (laughs) I'm sorry to tell
1: you. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. But I only know how to do this game the one way, right? I only know how to do what's been successful in the past. And if the rules have changed that much, then there's nothing much I can do about it. I
0: don't I just think they don't have. believe and, in and,
1: buying that stuff.
0: No, and that's why I made the point that it's not tethered to reality because at some point, and this is what I love about what you've taught me about investing in companies, at some point it has to become re tethered because companies create cash, companies create money, companies exist off of profit or at least revenue. And, um, and and at some point it has to get to the point where, if there's no more money to be paying off the bills, it, we we come back to reality. It I, comes I don't, back. I don't, it falls back to earth.
1: I don't think America gets to be Argentina exactly. W- with with that, I mean that Argentina has a habit of solving its monetary problems, paying its debt by just printing more pesos. Yeah. And that works for a little while. You know, people will take the pesos at face value until they start to realize, wow, uh, wages are going up, prices are going up, I need more pesos here. Mm -hmm. So um, what comes from, from this kind of thing typically and ultimately is some sort of inflationary response where there has been too much easy money, too much money put into the economy, and eventually people refuse to take those dollars. But American dollars are unique in the world. We're the world's reserve currency, which means everybody, all the banks around the world have to hold dollars. And uh, further, our presidents, both Obama and Trump, um, I guess even Bush, Bush at the very end of his administration, then Obama and now Trump, have been extremely aggressive at solving the problem of deflation, much more aggressive than any other country in the world by rapidly...
0: I was wondering why money. you left Clinton out I think Clinton did okay at that too no
1: Clinton, Clinton did very well with with uh, with the budget but in a different time. And and what has happened to us in two thousand nine at the end of the Bush administration was an absolute collapse of the financial.
0: Oh, you meant uh, the sector. second Bush. Sorry. Yeah,
1: Bush Two. <laughs> I
0: was thinking like, why are you going all the way back <laughs> oh, sorry. to the first yeah. George? I forgot there yeah. was a second one. Yes. Bush number two. Got it.
1: Bush number two jumped in and under I believe it was Greenspan, but I might be wrong. Might yeah, have been, no, I uh, think Greenspan was still there. Yeah started pouring, dropping interest rates and pouring money into the economy, which is a desperate measure, and it, to a degree, worked. And we didn't fall into a depression in 2009, which we probably would have had they not done that. And then Obama followed up, Obama's Federal Reserve followed up under Bernanke and kept that rocking. Bernanke had written a very important textbook on the Depression and believed very strongly that the mistake that FDR made was to tighten up money in the wrong time, hmm. 1938, or we would have come out of the Depression. And so he kept it going, uh, dropping interest rates and aggressively putting money into the economy to the tune of $4 trillion over a couple of years in, in, uh, through the Federal Reserve. And that uh, helped the economy stabilize, but it still didn't stimulate it. And so Obama went through eight years of sort of Staggering through a, a slush slushy economy, uh, with you know better unemployment all the time, but wages not going up. And then Trump came in and cut taxes aggressively, um, and interest rates have stayed very low. And that combination has now started to raise wages. So we're mm-hmm. starting to see a little inflation now, uh, especially on the bottom of wages. People who we know who run Huddle Houses and and Waffle Houses who employ people at a very low wage are having a terrible time finding people who will work
2: hmm.
1: for that low wage. Hmm. Their, their good workers have left and gone to better jobs with higher wages. And this is how it starts. When you start to squeeze wages, you'd like to see the bottom of the wage pile start to move up, and you'd like to see the people who pay the least for for employees to, to, to have to get to have to raise their prices because there's a bottom of the barrel employee that nobody wants. Yeah. I mean, we we're It's not inflation you in real life.
0: Know. So, yeah. to get the better employees, they have to pay more, which means they have to raise their prices, and that's what we all see
1: as inflation. Exactly. And that's what everybody's been trying to get at the Federal Reserve and for three presidencies has been trying to get the middle class and lower class wages up, and it hasn't happened, but it's starting to happen now. And then the question is, can you put the brakes on Mm -hmm. at the right time Mm -hmm. without throwing us into a depression and killing the goose and yet not so late that you go into massive inflation and become Argentina? It's dicey out there right now.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now, before we get to the next methodology, Mm. which we might have to get to next time, we got a really good question. We, you and me got a really good question. Um... Over Christmas, from a family member when we were talking about this, because of course we spend our Christmases talking about monetary policy now in the townhouse. <laughs> um, uh,
1: not and all of us love it.
0: Not all of us love it. But it was a good question. And the question was um, to what you were just saying when you say, oh, the government put all this money, put $4 trillion into the economy. How did they like literally do that? How did they logistically create money and put it, quote unquote, into the economy? And you gave a good answer. So, um, so maybe you can explain it here.
1: Sure. So in the old days, back before digital stuff, if you wanted to put more money into the economy, you printed paper and then you handed it out. By Somehow I was hoping
0: that was the answer. Just stand at the steps of the Treasury and get some money the government's right. handing out.
1: Right, which is sort of what happens, weirdly. Um, <laughs> today, you can do it just by having a digital entry into the Federal Reserve uh, debit and credit, right, in, into their ledger, which says that, okay, so we now are borrowing four trillion dollars from the american people and to borrow that we have the power of a bank to simply put in to our bank account at the federal reserve four trillion dollars so when you say they
0: used to literally print the money what you meant is they would print the money and then sort of borrow it, like put it on the books right. as a loan, but that right. they did actually print it. And now you're saying it's, it's on the books as a loan. They just don't actually print it. Cause now everything's exactly. done by computer.
1: Exactly. So they go, okay, well now we, we, the federal bank for the people owe the people $4 trillion. And we just make an entry that we have 4 trillion that we didn't have a minute ago. Okay. Now to put that in perspective, the value of the entire stock market, remember, we just said was ballparkish about, you know, $30 trillion. So we just created about, you know, one-seventh of the value of the entire U.S. stock market just because we felt like it, like it'd be a good idea.
0: Well, so that's yeah, a lot of power. Well, yeah, wasn't because we felt like it, it was because we thought it would be a good idea. Well,
1: we've rationally determined yeah. <laughs> that it's a good idea. We need to do this. Very definitely we need to do this. All right, now, how does the money get yeah, out exactly. into the public? Well, the, f- the federal government needs to have money to operate. And they run at a deficit. They, they operate with spending more money than they have. So in order to spend money you don't have, even if you're the federal government, you have to borrow it from somebody. Mm-hmm. Because the federal government can't create money.
0: Which, by the, the way, funny. I didn't know when I was a kid. When I was a kid and you listen to the news and they say things like, the deficit is $7 trillion. It's like, all right. So they just sort of didn't have that at some point. Like, I really didn't know until right. no, they until I was basically a young adult and, and actually like read about it that... They actually have to borrow that money. I just thought governments could make it up. So it's good that they can't just make it up; they have to borrow the money.
1: Right, and and the arm of the government. You're
0: like I raised an idiot.
1: So... <laughs> no, you, you, it's not. It's Inflation, not
0: simple. government borrowing. <laughs> I didn't know how any of it works.
1: But this is how it works in the U.S., right? They they just they just put the money on the books at the Federal Reserve. On their say-so, the federal government doesn't get to tell them what to do. You can see the president of the United States jumping up and down and and telling the Federal Reserve, lower your interest rates, but they didn't have to do it.
0: Yeah. right. So goodness, they, they, they're separated.
1: Their job is to be independent of the federal government and to do what they think is right to keep employment up. So
0: regardless they of create elections. this $4
1: trillion, And then the federal government goes to an auction where it says, we want to auction off a bunch of treasury bills, which is, means we are going to borrow money from the market. And they give that auction to companies like Goldman Sachs. So Goldman Sachs, big institutional bank says, okay, we will conduct an auction for you. The federal government, you have, let's say, um, uh, just, just say even numbers, you've got $4 trillion you want to borrow. All right. And our job is to set the interest rate for that by Mm -hmm. going to the market and finding out what interest rate will the market be willing to get in order to give you $4 trillion. So Goldman goes out there and starts looking for buyers of these treasury bills, people who are going to lend the money to the government and says, well, will you take 1%? No, 1% is not enough. How about 2%? No way. Okay, two and a half, maybe <laughs> two and three quarters. Okay, I've got some bidders here at two and three quarters. All right, now we only got rid of a, you know a few hundred million at two and three quarters. How about two and what's bigger than three quarters? This is it like seven eighths? Two and seven eighths percent. And uh, now I've got a trillion is gone. Okay so that it's an auction just like that but of course the increments are much much smaller in real life because mm-hmm. there's all these people out there who are bidding all the time weekly basically to do this all right so now um the federal reserve wants to get 4 trillion into the market what's it do oh well it just goes over to the auction and says i'll take 4 trillion dollars worth right now what yeah they bid In the auction. On their own auction. On Goldman Sachs's auction. Of money
0: that they just loaned.
1: Of money that the Federal Reserve wants to get into the economy. So the easiest way for them to do that is to just go to the auction and lend the money and get a treasury note in return.
0: Right. I'm so confused. Okay, now this is I'm confused now. So, the way I understand it is that the treasury goes and creates these loans and they go and they issue the loans and that is how people then loan loan the government money and that is how they create this money that comes out into the world, into the economy, not necessarily to the market exactly, but just into the economy in general.
1: Mm. All right, let's make sure we know how the, 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 all the different players here. So there's the federal government, which needs money to play with. Yeah. Needs money to run its defenses, pay Social Security, all that stuff, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, that's the federal government. Then that's a whole different entity is the Federal Reserve Bank. They're right. independent of the federal government.
0: Yeah, but the Fed doesn't issue debt. The Treasury Department does. Right. The Treasury Department issues treasury bills.
1: Right. So the the treasury bills are created by the federal government and are exchanged to lenders. Yeah. And those lenders are often private lenders, right? People right. People buy treasury bills all the time for their 401ks.
0: Right. So I must have said it confusingly because that's what I was trying to say.
1: Okay. So that's right so far. And so... Somebody is conducting an auction in the middle here between your 401k money market account that wants to buy treasury notes, and the government that wants to sell them and get the money, and the guys in the middle there might be Goldman Sachs or Solomon or whoever, right? Mm-hmm. So they're in the middle. Now, a a one potential bitter in this auction besides the guys who run your 401k and want to do money market account stuff Mm -hmm. would be the federal reserve bank itself
0: okay that's where i was confused i thought you were saying that the treasury department was issuing the notes and then going around and buying the notes back Mm -mm. which didn't make any sense to me but you were saying the treasury department issues the notes and the fed goes and buys them
1: right got it got it so the fed creates four trillion dollar obligation that it owes the american people and then it that money then goes to the federal government via this auction to buy treasury bills and then the federal reserve puts those treasury bills on its books as an asset so the books balance in the federal reserve it owes four trillion and it has four trillion dollar obligation from the federal government sitting right there in the form of four trillion dollars worth of t of t bills Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and so the fed's balanced and the federal government is in a deficit spending. They owe the money and have to pay it. And now, think about it, that money, that $4 trillion, was not in the economy at all a minute ago. And now the federal government has $4 trillion that wasn't in the economy that it now spends and it goes into the economy.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's how suddenly we have $4 trillion more than we did before.
0: Yeah. And... And as you pointed out, like 401k, you know, mutual funds will buy it. Like, it's not just the government. It's also smaller institutions will buy these things. And that's another way of getting it out into the
1: economy. Exactly. And then, well, those small institutions are not adding any new money to the economy. They're just using old money that was already there. So, right, the money in your 401k isn't new money. That's it's true. Money. That's true. Right. So, just this new money coming in comes from the Federal Reserve. Now, the Federal Reserve ah. also can go to individual institutional banks and buy their debt. So, they lend out $4 trillion from Goldman Sachs, they lend it out all over the place, and people owe them this money. Uh, then, Goldman can sell that to the Federal Reserve if the Federal Reserve wants those debts. And this is how the Federal Reserve helped banks get out of trouble. Mm-hmm. They bought crappy notes from them.
0: Mm-hmm. Good that point.
1: ultimately would be paid off, but are in trouble at that moment. <clears throat> so that's another way that they could get trillions of dollars into the economy.
0: God, it's just all like balance sheet.
1: <laughs> oh, it's Magic. such a balancing act. and And that's why it's getting a little scary when we're getting up into this part of the act where historically we've only been a handful of times before and what tends to follow well, what has followed historically in every case is a collapse of the economy at least into a major recession if not a depression and so that's the balancing act is to keep us from falling into that
0: so happy new year everybody <laughs> <Happy> new year. <laughs> <laughs> aren't you glad you pressed play <laughs> Look
1: on the bright side of life. <laughs> du-duh, du-duh, du-duh. <laughs> okay. Now, the bright side of this actually is that if if there will be talking as we go along about how to prepare yourself and and uh, and be in a position where you can benefit from. Well,
0: I want to hear, hear the next the the next um, method. We'll do that next time. of determining how to know
1: if you should keep waiting with your money. Yeah, there's another. there's another really good thing to look at. All right, we'll Which do that next time.
0: I can only assume we all have already heard before. No, but no.
1: No, we have. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but,
0: but it's new
1: for 2020. It's new
0: for 2020. And <laughs> we can discover new things as we have today. Yeah. Um, all, right. all right. Thanks, everybody. Then, Bye. Go play. See
1: you. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for our podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only and I hope you enjoyed it.